Welcome to Round the Table, a fortnightly show for young people to discuss the big stories of the last couple of weeks. Each week, we're joined by Conservatives, Labour, the SNP and a rotating fourth party. Here to tell us more about it is this week's presenter, Rory Barraclough. Hello and welcome to Round the Table. There has been diplomatic uproar as a former Russian spy and his daughter were poisoned on British soil. We asked the panel, has the government taken the right steps to de-escalate the situation or have we acted too quickly without proof? The UK and the EU have announced that they have come to an agreement over a transition period between the end of the negotiations and Brexit itself. The breakthrough has been roundly commended by some, but opposition parties have criticised the government's handling of the situation, pointing to the lack of any concrete deal on the Irish border issue and the government's apparent change of stance on the common fisheries policy. It's an increasingly global and increasingly online world, but revelations that Cambridge Analytica, the political data company behind the Brexit campaign and Donald Trump's rise to power, have been harvesting personal details, interests and habits through social media have shocked the world. Up to 50 million Facebook accounts were estimated to have been harvested to gather data for political means. Is this moral? And are the traditional methods of campaigning dying out? And Labour Live will take place in June 2018. The music festival organised by Jeremy Corbyn and his party will feature acts such as Ray Morris, The Magic Numbers and a speech from the Labour leader himself. We'll talk youth engagement in today's Britain. Hello and welcome to Round the Table, where we get young, engaged political party members to discuss the big issues of the last two weeks. Um, with me today, if you guys would like to introduce yourselves. Uh, yeah, I'm Thaddeus, I'm from the Scottish Conservatives. Hi, I'm Paul and I'm from uh, Scottish Labour. And I'm Linus, I'm from the Scottish Greens. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Um, so the big issue of the last two weeks, probably the biggest one dominating the headlines, has been all surrounding Russia. Earlier this month, former Russian military intelligence officer and double agent Sergei Skripal was uh, poisoned with a Novichok nerve agent. It's being investigated as an attempted murder. And many British politicians, including the Prime Minister, were quick to blame Russia for the attack. Russia, however, deny this. Since then, it's become a serious diplomatic row, um, culminating in the expulsion of British diplomats from Russia and Russian diplomats from Britain. Thaddeus, what's your take on it been, and how do you think Theresa May has dealt with the situation? I personally think Theresa May handled the situation quite well. Um, when the incident happened, she didn't rush in and accuse Russia immediately, uh, like a lot of the media were doing. She waited about a week and let the police conduct their own investigations and then when she had the information necessary she made a statement to the House of Commons, made her position very clear, gave Russia about 36 hours to respond. Russia responded by tweeting sarcastic memes uh, about you know how silly the British are and then she gave the only re- reasonable response and I was actually quite impressed by politicians from all around the all around the House of Commons siding with the Prime Minister and backing her and she built almost completely a consensus which is very impressive. That's right. Even um, the leader of the Scottish National Party, Nicola yeah. Sturgeon, has recently come out to say she supports Theresa May. Paul, what did you think? And what did you think of Corbyn's reaction? He's taken a more measured approach to the situation, some would say. Um, yes, he has taken a measured approach. I, I would disagree with him personally on this approach. Okay. Um, the evidence is quite clearly a suggestion that Russia did it. Um, so I would agree at this point with the, with the Prime Minister's actions 
And much of Labour also agrees with um, the Prime Minister's actions. John McDonald and, uh, uh, has said that the Prime Minister acted in the right way and would, would support for his action. I'd also say that Russia's response has been, if they were innocent, um, less than useful might be a term used by uh, one Russian news news uh, Kremlin spokesperson essentially saying that if you're a professional traitor in Britain my advice would be to don't move to England <laughs> and then and then went about listing various uh, ways of killing people so I would say that the um, Russian response if they didn't do it was um, very underwhelming and if they truly did not do it as they're claiming they should have done a much better response to try and vindicate themselves. So I would agree with Theresa May's response. And Linus, from the Green Party's perspective, what did you think of May's response, which has been seen as strong by many people, and then, of course, Corbyn, who came in and said that we were going in too quickly? Um, Yeah, we would tend to be more on Corbyn's side than the rest of the Labour Party on this, um, ironically. Um, Obviously, it's an attempted murder. Anyone that... Whoever... Um, perpetrated it, then they deserve um, harsh punishment. If it was Russia that did it, then Theresa May has made the right move. However, any uh, any accusation has to be backed up by evidence. So far, we've got a statement from the government saying that it was Russia that did that, but there's no actual tangible evidence behind it. We've got sources from inside the FCO saying that the government has in fact been pressuring them on and on and on, um, beyond their comfort zone, to say that it was Russia. All the FCO has been prepared to sign up to is the fact that the nerve agent used was of a type developed by Russia. They haven't actually been able to say whether or not it was made in Russia itself. Bear in mind that the actual um, formula for Novichok, it was released publicly um, about a decade and a bit ago. So in theory, any country could have made this. The fact that um, three, four decades ago it was originally developed in Russia isn't in itself evidence that it was Russia that did it. So if new evidence does come to light that that is where the source came from, then Theresa May made the right move, but any action has to be on the basis of evidence and working in international guidelines. So it's your opinion then that we are moving too hastily. Um, would you be worried that on an international scale that we're heading towards the kind of tensions that haven't been seen since the 80s? Um Yes, um, I'd also point to obviously 2003, we, all we had then was a statement from the government saying that Assad had uh, weapons of mass destruction. We went on the basis of, we on the basis of a statement from the government as our evidence that obviously turned out to be wrong. You need tangible evidence. So I'm worried that we're entering that kind of situation on the basis of little evidence and simply taking the government at its words which is a danger, as we've seen before. Paul, how would you respond to that, um, people who say that we're moving too hastily without proof? Um, I would say there is tangible evidence that it was Russia. Uh, we need to take into account that there are very few states on Earth that have the capabilities to produce chemical weapons and biological weapons of this nature. And we also need to take into account that there is substantial circumstantive evidence surrounding this case um, for which is extraordinary in its quantity, not just the responses of um, the Russian government, where I think Putin said uh, they didn't listen to us then, they'll listen to us now. Uh, Previous actions from the Russian government, um, the death of Alexander Litvinenko in um, London, this is striking similarities to it. And the Russian government previously has had no, has taken no action to prosecute the people who Britain's clearly said 
perpetrated this crime, I believe one of the two suspects who is Britain has international arrest warrants open on is now a parliament deputy in Russia. Um, so I think we might not have concrete evidence yet to say it was definitely Russia, but there's more than enough circumstantial evidence to come to clear conclusions that Russia is vagrantly um, taking action on British soil, which is illegal and immoral. It has put one police officer's life in grave danger and the potential to harm hundreds of people in Salisbury. It's just intolerable action from whoever did this, and it seems most likely that it was Russia at this point. And Thaddeus, if it is Russia that is behind it, should we be worried about the nature of the Russian government at the moment and what should we do and um, what steps should we take? Can I address that point Absolutely, first? Absolutely, yeah. Sorry, I, I would also say that Russia had over a week informally and she, they definitely had 36 hours formally after mm. Theresa May's first mm. statement last week to respond and to help the British mm-hmm. state with its, own author- with its own investigations and as I said it responded by tweeting idiotic memes on Twitter and dismissing the whole thing out of hand. That is not the action of an innocent state. They could, if, if they really were innocent, they could have acted and they could have helped us and we could have all moved on. It was them failing to act, which, which meant Theresa May concluded that it was Russia. Um, as to your, your, sorry, your main question, is, which is, sorry, should we be worried about the Russian state at the moment? Yeah, about the Russian state and the nature of the, um, I mean, as you say, the kind of communications that it's making and the steps that it, it's taking towards international um, diplomacy. Yeah, I think we should be very worried. Um, you know, people like to say that we're not in the Cold War at the moment, but I think we're approaching very quickly a new Cold War. Russia has invaded Georgia and taken several districts from Georgia but in 2008, I think. they A couple of years ago, they annexed Crimea from the Ukraine, a sovereign state which was aligning with the West and was a democratic state. Russia took land from it violently. They're constantly making intrusions into the West cyberspace. There are serious allegations that they've shot down Polish and, I think, Malaysian planes in the past. Um, the NATO uh, allies in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe are seriously worried about Russian incursions in their, in, their, in, in their sovereign territory. And there are now serious allegations that Russia is at least trying to interfere in democracy in the United States, in Great Britain, in France and in other places. We should be very, very, very worried about Russia. And it doesn't look good for the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, a potential prime minister, to be trying to find any possible excuse to not point the finger at Russia when it has just launched a chemical attack on our own territory. It's outrageous. So the question remains, what do we do? Steps have already been taken. There is talk that England may not play at the World Cup in Russia, being uh, the most terrifying (laughs) of those examples. Um, But obviously there's the diplomats that have been expelled from both countries. What what are the steps going forward to try and solve this conflict of tensions? I can say even if England turn up, we won't be playing for very long in the World Cup. Um, I think the whole Western NATO alliance needs to seriously coordinate much better about how to respond to Russia. At the moment, the economies of Germany, Italy and France are very much entangled in Russia, which means they've been very slow in imposing sanctions or enforcing sanctions. The UK needs to step up on that and to try and convince her allies they need to impose more sanctions. Obviously, it's more difficult with us now stepping out of the European Union and with President Trump in the United States, who is known to have some pro-Russian tendencies. Um, but, you know, that being said, I think this could be a, this outrageous chemical attack on British territory could be a wake up call to the West. There has been remarkable unity among NATO, among the EU, among our main Western allies about this. So it's, we, we just need to focus and coordinate better because Russia is a fading state. Its economy is collapsing. It has a 
virtually no democracy, its infrastructure is poor, its army is backwards, and it, it's only survived this long because people have ignored it. So the UK and the EU have announced that they have come to an agreement over the transitional period between the end of membership um, of the EU and Brexit itself. But many opposition parties have criticised the government for appearing ill-prepared over issues such as the Irish border, which is not included in the agreement, and um, the common fisheries policy, which will be adopted in the transitional period, but has been criticised by the Scottish National Party. When creating new policy, um, how do you see the government's work on this transitional period so far, Paul? What did you think? Um... Uh, was everything else in Brexit that's been no one really knows what's going on it all seems to have been in a massive rush and it seems like the Conservative Party is back in 90s, 80s level disorder over this entire policy um, this is a huge issue that not just in terms of Britain looking being humiliated overseas but it could have a real effect on people living in Britain poverty could get worse, wages could stagnate and jobs could be lost and um, just all this uncertainty is going to hurt the people on the streets. It's not just a political thing. It is as close as we're going to get to something that's going to fundamentally change how people live in Britain. So I think um, this transitional period is positive. There are flaws to it, like any policy. And But I will congratulate the government on finding a clear course and deciding we are going to have this transitional period and uh, we need to say, we need to say the government is doing the right thing but they do need to clarify their Brexit policy if it's possibly going to get anywhere positive. So you congratulate the government on finding a transitional mm-hmm. period uh, agreement but are worried about Any, the, the deal yeah. itself by the end of it. Yes. What did you think about um, the, the lack of our, any agreement on the Irish border issue within the transitional Uh, This is perhaps one of the most concerning parts, not just because it could divide the country, but for national security. um, The Irish border was a key part of the Good Friday Agreement, and putting it into question could make us go back to troubles um, which no one wants to happen, but could be an awful byproduct of this um, rushed process of trying to leave the European Union with no clear plan and um, not putting people before politics. Linus, do you echo those statements? Um, uh, specifically on the Irish border? Well, yeah. on, on the, the idea as a whole. So the Irish border was um, a large part of the yeah. news yeah. stories about this because it wasn't included in the transitional agreement. Um, but the government were um, yeah. um, kind of commended for finding a transitional period yeah. agreement. Obviously, um, the fact that we've now got a set date span is a positive thing. Like, you can't really... Sp- you can't really put it any other way if you're rational. It's good to have a set time frame. It's also good that we give the Conservatives credit on um, at finally giving um, security to EU citizens that are going to come here in the transitional agreement, confirming to them that they will have the same rights as people that arrived before Brexit. That's a positive development as well. Um, there was um, In the agreement, there was actually um, a backup arrangement for the for Northern Ireland that if no other agreement was arranged that if no other agreement was made, then Northern Ireland would effectively remain part of the single market and the customs union while still in the UK. That's important because um that then proves to us that the Conservatives are prepared to concede that a country can be in the UK and also in the single market at the same time post Brexit. They've now conceded that, so the important thing that we can now extrapolate from that partial agreement backup agreement that they reached for the Irish border 
is if that's possible for Northern Ireland, then why isn't it possible for Scotland to reach that agreement as well, remaining in the single market and remaining in the UK? So Thaddeus, what did you think? Well, obviously I was pleased that that there is progress when it comes to Brexit. We now have a draft withdrawal agreement. It still needs to be signed off, obviously, by the European leaders. It needs to be ratified by the UK Parliament and the European Parliament. But we seem to be getting there and people seem positive. There are still problems. The Northern Ireland issue has been raised. Theresa May has said that if the European Union tries to impose a border along the Irish Sea, keeping Northern Ireland in the customs union and the single market and the rest of the UK out, that's something no British Prime Minister could accept. Sir Keir Starmer, the Brexit spokesman for Labour, has said pretty much the same thing. So I don't think it's really going to happen. It's a bit of a non-starter. Although I understand independence supporters in Scotland have seized on this to try and show why Scotland can be a member of the single market. Although obviously I think if you impose a border along Hadrian's Wall, it will cause far more problems uh, as well. I, I don't think nationalists have necessarily considered that. There are other problems with the, with the agreement. Fisheries is, is, a, is a key one. It's one that the Scottish Tories are very concerned about because there had been promises made by the Leave campaigners that British fishermen would be out of the common fisheries policy immediately. Now it looks like they're going to have to be in it for another couple of years. Is there debate within the Conservative Party as a UK entity over because it was, uh, it was the government that were criticised for keeping the common fisheries policy and also losing losing the their votes within within the the policy making for the common fisheries policy um so it, are the scottish conservatives concerned that the uk conservatives are almost selling scotland down the river i think there's real concern i know the scottish conservative mp's had a meeting with the Chief Whip in the House of Commons yesterday to be briefed on this plan, and they all met the Prime Minister today to be briefed on this plan. Ruth Davidson released a statement yesterday saying she's quite concerned. A lot of, you know, the Scottish Tories basically represent the northeast of Scotland where there's an awful lot of fishing jobs, so it's our job to represent those people. I would say that, although it's, the deal is not perfect, it will in the long run give you know, Great Britain and, and Scotland complete control of its fishing waters. It's only one extra year delay in that. So I don't think it's the real end of the world, and I hope that can be communicated effectively to Scottish and British fishermen, that it's only an extra 12 months. And in that 12 months, there are guarantees that British fishermen will not lose any of their right to catch any anything, um, and they'll be consulted on any sort of scientific and technical changes which happen in the fisheries policy. But the Tories need to be very careful how they communicate that to both you know, their leadership in Westminster and their, their constituents in the northeast of Scotland. So come the end of the transitional period, would you be in favour of keeping similar policies or would you be looking to um, change the laws that we have here in Britain over common fisheries? So, I mean, there's word that, I mean, the common fisheries policy um, enforces quotas on how much um, fishermen can fish of certain types and in, in, in sizes of nets and such like to try and preserve fish stocks. Now, that has been criticised by a lot of fishermen over the fact that they feel like they can't kind of maintain their livelihood um, well enough. Should, when we leave the EU and we have the choice to be making our own laws over that, would you reintroduce similar quotas? I think quotas are inevitable. I mean, scientists tell us that we're fishing too much. Fish stocks have declined massively over the last few years. And that does need to be communicated. Whoever's in power, whether it's the European Union, whether it's the Tory government in Westminster, whether it's the Nationalist government in Holyrood, that needs to be communicated to the fishermen in the northeast of Scotland that, look, you cannot fish like it's you know, the 20th century anymore. There are no fish in the sea. And those people have to be communicated that and they have to be su- supported in going through that process of finding another job, which is incredibly difficult. 
it, it's not it's not an easy one. But at the same time, fishing is only something like 0.05% of the British economy. So for the rest of us, it doesn't really matter mm. so much. So um, overall, are you still confident that the British government is um, in control of these Brexit talks? I'm the Tory spokesman, so I will say yes. Okay, and Paul, what what did you think <laughs> of the... Um, or of what's been said by Thaddeus there on behalf of the Scottish Conservatives. Can I just ask a question of them? If you weren't the spokesman of the Scottish Toys, what would you say? I would say yes. Okay, just wondering. <laughs> uh, what was the question? Sorry. Well, it's it's basically on what Thaddeus has been saying. On the issue of the Irish border and on the uh, issue of fisheries, both seem to be raising a lot of questions, and s- some would say more questions than are being answered. Are you still confident? Are are you confident that the the British government um, is still in, is in control of talks with the EU, um, and do you think the Irish border and the common and the fisheries agreements these are issues that will be dealt with um, in time? Uh, thank you. Um, I'm. I think the government's in control of the talks. I'm just not sure if they control their own party in terms of being able to maintain a cohesive narrative of what they want, when they want it, and how they want it, uh, which is very concerning. Um, I think on the point of the fisheries, it may be a very small segment of the economy, but for the livelihoods of the people, it's vitally important. So um, if, for some reason, fishing does go down in these areas, we need to have job, jobs retraining programmes, jobs creation programmes, these kind of schemes, so we don't have a situation like we had in the 80s where coal mining areas were completely devastated and there was no extra jobs in the area. Also, these communities have suffered because of the turn down in the oil prices. Unemployment went up almost 50% in some areas. So it is important that we do maintain these industries and employment. And if we cannot, we find different solutions. I think on the point of the Irish border, it's very concerning, as I said, for the troubles earlier. But also, um, I think to counter Linus's point, uh, it's just deeply impractical for the Scotland to have a hard border or even a uh, trading border with, the, with uh, England. Almost all of our trade is with England. It would cost us far more than it would be to have a even small tariffs with the EU. So there's a lot of confusion over the, the Northern, Northern Irish border situation um, and how this is, issue is going to be solved. How do you see it being solved and what would you think would be the best steps going forward? Um, well, I personally, and as a party, we think that staying in the single market is the best approach for almost all issues. Um, the Northern Irish border, the problem of it hurting the economy. The UK as a whole staying in. Yes, um, that's our policy at the moment. And we think this is important to maintain a good trade, good relations with the EU, and maintaining our uh, economic ability to grow um, and support working people and the economy generally. Um I think the Tory strategy of not really knowing what to do, not having a strategy, and then eventually coming round to what the consensus is, is damaging for Britain internationally and damaging for the economy as a whole and could result in serious job loss mm. if it isn't mismanaged. So far, we've staggered through it. We have this transition deal, but it could have gone badly in so many times. And we are running a serious risk of being left out in the cold, not having anything we want and just um, maintaining the status quo, which is not what Britain voted for. Linus, how would you resolve the situations? Um, well, obviously, I'd agree with Paul on that one, that obviously the easy solution to the entire uh, Irish border question, um, Scotland and England, the border there, etc. The easy answer is just for everyone to stay in the single market. 
Um, the position of the Greens as a whole, obviously, would be to stay in the EU itself in its entirety. I disagree with that, but that's our party position. Um, on the fisheries, uh, so that that's we've got an easy solution, a way of fixing this, stay in the single markets, but none, all the parties, including Labour, are unfortunately all scared of taking that easy option that would benefit everyone, which is kind of strange. Um, on the fisheries issue... Um, the the quotas that have been imposed by the EU, in theory, the Greens, obviously, mm. we would agree with the principle of them. Um, they're meant to protect the environment, etc. The main problem that has um, swung up with them is the fact that they are quotas for how many fish the boat has when it comes back to land. What that has ended up meaning is that the, fi- is that the fishing boats simply scoop up massive amounts of fish, um, see uh, what breeds they've got, throw out the dead ones that when they go over the quota. So we're killing the same amount of fish, but we're just getting less in food stock. So obviously those quotas need reforming and Brexit could provide us a solution, uh, a way of resolving that issue. And I would agree with the point of um, the Conservatives that um, an extra 12 months in the common fisheries policy, it's not a massive deal considering how long we've been in there. It's not ideal, but it's nothing to get. Thaddeus, I'll first let you answer the single market comments that have been made, um, which are that the easiest option is for the UK to remain within the single market. That's not the policy of Theresa May. There's no doubt staying in the single market and the customs union would be very easy. It would, in the short term, solve a lot of problems. But assuming we still do leave the European Union, which I think every party is pretty much signed up to, other than, say, the Greens nationally, That would mean we'd have no say whatsoever in how the single market or the customs union works. Other countries could impose rules that are right for them, but are not necessarily right for the UK, and we'd be bound to follow them. We'd have no representation at the top table. We wouldn't be able to sign our own trade deals. We wouldn't be able to set our own regulations or food labelling standards or anything like that. So in the long run, staying in the single market is not practical at all. Uh, Could I get in on that? Um, Obviously, um, the single market and the customs union are two very separate things. You get countries like um, Norway, like Liechtenstein, like Iceland, like Switzerland to an extent that are in the single market, but they're not in the customs union. They still have the power to make their own trade deals, set their own tariffs, etc. So I'd say the ideal um, circumstance, in my own opinion, the Greens would say the EU as a whole, um, in my own opinion, is that we retain membership for the single market, but we stay out of the customs union. That gives us kind of the maximum economic benefit while um, also getting the maximum um, economic independence that is possible in this situation. Sorry to come back on that quickly. We would still have to sign up to all the rules of the single market, and that governs every single product we buy, every single, you know, everything bought and sold in the UK is governed by the rules of the single market. And for the first time in history, Britain would have no control or say whatsoever on those economic rules. And I think that's impractical in the long run. Thaddeus, um, last question I'd like to ask the panel is, do you think this is an issue that's being used by opposition parties to derail Brexit? Do you think this is something that's being exploited? What, so Ireland and the fisheries policy? Yeah, I think the the, the issues that have come out of this con- the contingency plan or the, the transitional period agreement, um, some have criticised opposition parties for taking any opportunity to to make Brexit look like it's going badly? I don't think there's any doubt that's what they're doing. I mean, certainly certain that's their job. They're the opposition. They have to criticise the government and hold the government to account and ask the government tough questions. And almost it's a relief that Jeremy Corbyn has been doing that in the last year since the election because in the couple of years before that, he wasn't doing it at all and the government could get away with a lot of stuff which didn't necessarily have the right scrutiny. So I'd welcome the scrutiny the government's getting. 
you know, in Parliament and in the press. That's good. I do find, I, I thought it's a bit hypocritical of the SNP, for example, to criticise the Tories for not getting Scotland out of the common fisheries policy quite so quickly as we'd originally hoped, while at the same time maintaining it as a Scottish nationalist policy to enter back into the single market and the common fisheries policy as soon as they go back into the European Union as an independent country. And it's a shame there is not an SNP representative here who can respond to that. I thought that takes a bit of schutzpah, to be honest. Um, but other than that, I think Labour and the other opposition parties are, are just doing their job. Paul, how do you think the opposition parties have... Uh, on behalf of Labour, you're welcome for the scrutiny. <laughs> we'll try and keep it up as much as possible. Um, we think, well, obviously it's the opposition's job to tell the government when it's wrong. Yep. It's also important for the opposition to tell the government when it's right. Uh, Labour has had a history of cooperating during national crises. The war is the most obvious one. We just think the government's policy at the moment is hurting Britain and doesn't help anyone, essentially, apart from a small number of Tory uh, constituency MPs. Um, we think that if the government does have a sensible policy that protects jobs, protects standards, and uh, allows Britain to maintain its business around the world and in Europe, we will most certainly support it. Until it has that policy, we will continue the scrutiny that we have been given it so far. Linus, a comment on the opposition party's attitude towards the Brexit negotiations? Yeah, um, obviously, um, the government isn't going to criticise itself, so it's always down to the opposition to put more weight on the counter-arguments to what the government's doing than um, the arguments in favour, naturally, because there's no one else to do that. Um, I'd say, in an ideal world, we would have a government that criticises itself and is holds itself to account more than the extent that it does right now. In that case we would have an opposition that would hopefully be more willing to accept good things about the government as well as the bad things. Um, in the current, there does, I think anyone would admit there does tend to be a tendency in opposition to leap on anything uh, as a means to criticise the government, mm -hmm. just because that's what they're about to do. Um, but you can see why there is a purpose for that in our current political climate, you would say. So recently it was discovered that a company called Cambridge Analytica was using some, what some would consider to be questionable techniques to gather data um, on potential voters and on people um, to use as a political strategy and a political tool. Um, they were behind Brexit and um, behind Trump's election. Um, so with that in mind, we're asking, are the traditional methods of campaigning dead? And should we be worried about new methods of campaigning that are being used? Um, I'm going to come to Linus first. Okay. Um, the wider point uh, I would make on this is that before the advent of social media, etc., um, the way that, that uh, political parties tended to respond to voters was by changing their policies based on what people thought. That's a good thing. It's good for democracy, etc. Tended, it wasn't always the case, but that was the general theme. What's happening now with social media is that um, they tend political parties tend to be looking at what types of voters they are, what they um, what they believe, etc. And they're not actually changing the policies; they're simply changing the messaging. That's dangerous for democracy. It's verge. It's not quite the level of brainwashing, etc. But it is a form of deception that you're giving different messages to different people. Ideally, everyone should be given the same information and that way you can judge the parties objectively. So, yeah, we would agree that um, current methods of campaigning, they are verging on more of PR 
um, deception more than actual policy-based argument. That's what we're in danger of here. Okay. And Thaddeus, so the criticism was that this company, um, Cambridge Analytica, um, it's been claimed was harvesting Facebook, up to 50 million is the estimate, um, Facebook profiles and their behaviours without necessarily their um, consent to find out their behaviours and what would they would react well to. Um, and what Linus is talking about is micro kind of electioneering, as it were, using social media to try and... Um, get the correct message out to individual users. Is that worrying? And are the old methods and the traditional methods, the door stopping, um, the door knocking, sorry, um, of previous campaigns, is is that a dead method? Well, look, there's quite serious allegations made against Cambridge Analytica. Uh, anyone who saw the Channel 4 uh, news last night and the Observer at the weekend would know that. They have questions to answer. They've, uh, they've, they've got to answer some serious questions and I hope they do that. On a Broad, on the broader topic, though, I wouldn't actually agree that there's only now got sort of micro-targeted electioneering. I mean, pol- political parties have always targeted people by, you know, their sex or their age or their postcode or their salary or, or their job, for example, simply because that's the only efficient way to campaign. So there's, there's a reason the Tories never really bothered to campaign in sort of mining towns in North Wales, for example. It's because they knew from the data they had that they weren't going to win there, so there's no point wasting resources. And it's the same reason why Labour doesn't campaign in the stock uh, stockbroker belt around London. They know they're not going to win there. So it's only that it's on social media and it's perhaps certain information that people weren't volunteer- voluntarily giving up, which is a problem. But at the same time, you know, this is what Facebook is. It's a, it's a website and its express purpose is to, is to collect our data and sell it to the highest bidder. We all knew this when we signed up to it. So I don't think, assuming the law isn't being broken, I don't think we can really compl- complain about it. As to the, sorry, your main question, which is the, the older methods of campaigning, I, I've been campaigning in the council election coming up in Pennycook this last few weeks, and I've been delivering thousands of leaflets, and I've been canvassing on doorsteps. I've been, the Tories have been holding street, street stalls, as have the other parties as well. But I can tell you, after canvassing in, the winter, in Scottish winter, I can tell you the traditional methods are definitely not dead. <laughs> And Paul, would you uh, agree with those sentiments? Um, I'd agree with most of the sentiments here. I would say it's worrying the scale that um, you can use micro data to discover parts of uh, target people, particularly that's sinister. It, it very much reminds me of House of Cards, um, which is worrying. <laughs> yes. um, but I would also say that no campaign in previous old methods of campaigning, as some people call them, are certainly not dead. Um, some most important ways to persuade people is door knocking. At least I hope it is, because I spend spent too much time doing it. Yes. You might say, especially in as you said, Scottish winters. But I would say it is a key part of any campaign, just getting to know the electorate, hearing their concerns, and saying what your party's policies are. Just from door knocking, talking to people on the streets, it can have an enormous effect. Just them being able to tell you what their policies are, you being able to pass it on to. Uh, Ian Murray in my case, and just being able to tell them exactly what our party policies are away from the haze of social media on the internet, the news, which can always confuse issues. I would say that's one of the most important parts of any campaign and is definitely not going to die anytime soon because people from all parties see how vitally important it is. Should the government be taking steps then to... um curtail the way that political parties are using social media? 
um, and companies these because of course Cambridge Analytica is its own company mm. which was then being hired to mm-hmm. to carry out these I data. think Cambridge Analytica is a particularly egregious example of this top sort of actions they lied to the House of Commons select committee quite recently which is particularly worrying um, them stealing this data without the consent of the users of the knowledge of knowledge of them is deeply concerning um the way the government takes action against it there are many ways to do it i think banning it overall is the wrong action since this kind of campaigning does have its place in the modern world but there need to be restrictions on how you get the data and then how you use it to such an extent that you don't target vulnerable groups who um might be particularly open to this kind of persuasion using this massive amount of data that companies now have on us. And and Linus, do you think that campaign methods will be changing over the next five to ten years? Or, as has been said, do you think that traditional styles of door knocking and, and, and leafleting will, will always remain? Yeah, um, so yeah um, definitely the traditional methods aren't going to go away anytime soon. No one's saying that they're dying out to any massive extent. I think anyone that's been involved in politics over the last few years has, most be, most activists have done a very large amount of that, probably more than they had for the few decades prior. Um, the point about this micromanaging is that when obviously previously we um, target people based on location, but now it's come down to gender, it's come down to attitudes, it's come down to age. We're targeting people out, it's very, very curtailed sophisticated campaigning where not very few people are getting the same message to each other and that is dangerous um, the fact that we can't look at what other people are seeing and seeing if it matches what we're being told um, on the point of personal data etc um, I think um, obviously we all sign a, an agreement when we join Facebook in theory we know what we're signing up to very few people actually read that agreement um, I think most people that sign up to Facebook don't realise the full implications of what they're agreeing to. So there has to be regulation by the government to ensure that, number one, people actually know what they're signing up to, and number two, putting regulations on just what the limit is on how much information these companies can collect from us. Maybe it should be that when you sign up to Facebook, that isn't a prerequisite, that you basically divulge your entire life secrets to them. Maybe that should be a government policy, but there has to be action on both those fronts. So the Labour Party have announced um, a festival, of all things, um, in June, um, including uh, acts from Ray Morris, um, The Magic Numbers, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself will be speaking at uh, some point during the festival. So we're asking the panel, is this an acceptable way for um, political parties to engage young people? Is this a good way to engage young people and get them involved in politics, or is it propaganda? Thaddeus, do you want to start? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an excellent way to get young people involved in politics. I mean, I think it's a bit patronising to say that you can only be a young person and involved in politics if a politician sneaks into a music festival and gives <laughs> you some lines in between different acts. But you know, if it gets some people involved, then then you know that's that's great. It's a shame that it's Labour doing this and not the Tories. But the Tories aren't likely going to do this with Theresa May. So <laughs> now uh, I know that there were a couple of Conservatives M- MPs that did stage a festival of a similar kind um, without was it, similar success. No, it probably wasn't a similar size. <laughs> no, was there it? was a couple of hundred people that. that and, and that's that's the, that that goes to 
the core of the issue, we need to develop policies and we need to develop personalities that first attract young people. And we need to get people talking about Tory policies in the same way that a whole junk, younger generation seems to be talking about the absolute boy that is Jeremy Corbyn. And then perhaps we can have a music festival in the home county somewhere. But we need to do the hard work first. Yeah. OK. Paul, what did you think? I feel like uh, if Jeremy Corbyn's in any group chat, his nickname should now be turned to our boy Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was very sad to hear Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be performing a song uh, <laughs> at the festival. Um, I think this is a wonderful way to engage um, some young people. It's explicitly said to be a lab- have Labour events on, so it's not insidious. Um, I think we, we also have many other methods of uh, engaging young people just on Saturday, I believe. Uh, yes, Saturday. Um our leader of Scotland uh, did an event with young people that I attended that was very interesting. And he answered many of our questions. Um, Richard Leonard did? Richard Leonard, yeah. yes. Um, and he was very interesting. He gave us very candid answers that were interesting and insightful. Um, and this is just another method of engaging young people who so far in the last 20 years haven't been engaged in politics. Would you say that British politics is now about personalities more than ever before? Um... I wouldn't say that it's a very difficult one because British politics, I think, goes through phases in terms of personalities. We've had our Churchills, we've had our Thatchers, who are very big personalities in terms of bringing their support. We've had Tony Blair's and we had David Cameron to a certain extent. Um, But I think policies are still massively important. Labour wouldn't be the party it was without its policies. Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be the politician he was without his policies, without his clear moral basis for everything he does. Um, and his personality just happens to be very good for campaigning. And Paul, you're a, a Labour member. Would you be interested in going to Labour Live 2018? Yes, I would definitely be interested in going to that yeah. event. Well, you need to keep us updated mm-hmm. if you do go. Um, you, have to, you have to give us the lowdown. I'll give you a report afterwards. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Linus, what do you think? Is it a good way to engage young people? Yeah, um, obviously... Um, the arts, by definition, is a means of expressing ourselves. It can be like personal experiences, it can be about world issues, and obviously there's no reason politics shouldn't be a part of that. Um, it's a great way of... Politics can be insanely boring sometimes, and it's a great way of kind of um, making the entire thing more lighthearted. Um, Saturday Night Live, for example, me and Paula... Both big, big fans. fans of that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, really um, so it, it's a way of kind of taking the seriousness off it, actually having a bit of fun, which there's no reason, no logical reason why politics shouldn't be enjoyable at times too, just like every other element of life, to keep you sane. It's like for everyone's sanity and therefore you get a better pinnacle of debate when everyone's not wildly depressed, then you need a bit of fun now and again. And Thaddeus, lots of love for Saturday Night Live in the room, and that, of course, takes... Um, takes the mick in some ways of big political personalities. Is politics more about personalities than ever before? I think it's more about personality than it has been for a long time. And the, the, the big one of the many big mistakes the Tories made last year was to focus too much on policy and not enough on personality and inspiration, which Labour did brilliantly and very effectively. Um, and stuff like Saturday Night Live and In This Country, Have I Got News For You and Mock The Week and things, taking the mick out of per- political personalities is just... A, it's very funny, and it's be very, very healthy for our democracy, I think. It stops politicians getting too big-headed, other than Alec Baldwin's character on uh, Saturday Night Live, Donald Trump, who will never get less big-headed. Do you think that 
um, the Conservatives need to change. I mean, you mentioned it slightly that Conservatives need to change the way that they introduce their policies. Um, would you like to see them um, in the future holding events like this and seeing successful ways? And how would they go about getting to the point at which the Conservatives could hold a, a similar event in, for example, the home counties and, and, and have a success of it? Well, yeah, obviously, I'd love for us to be able to, f- you know, fill out, you know, Glastonbury's main stage like Jeremy Corbyn did last year that would be brilliant but we have a lot of hard work to get there from our current position you know there is stuff in the works in the last week or so the party launched a new young conservatives uh, scheme to get young people I think between 16 and 25 involved in the party to give up to give policy ideas and to have the opportunity to meet cabinet ministers and the prime minister and senior MPs and things and it's doing that and making sure we get our message across properly and effectively and youthfully, rather than say relying on the you know the old MPs in the, in the House of Commons, in, in the media and through and through the social media as well. Um, but it's we I I'm a young Tory and I feel we are a long way from getting anywhere close to the to the admiration which uh, Jeremy Corbyn or indeed uh, Nicola Sturgeon north of the border receives. Hmm. Um, we are of course involved in a fortnightly discussion where for young people to talk about the big stories um, of the last two weeks. Would you say uh, that youth politics is a healthy place? Is there, you know, could it improve? And do you think young people are engaged at the moment, Paul? Um, yes, I'd say people are more engaged than ever. We just need to look at the election last year at the highest levels of youth engagement in almost 20 years, I think, which is very good. I know there's a way to put it, really. Um, I think sometimes it, it can be very negative, uh, on the internet, if you have ever uh, been there, strayed into the yes, comment section. Don't do that. Um, but it can be very negative, which I think is can be improved on if you can have healthy discussion in the comment section. It, it could be a safer place to go and not want to blow your head off. Um, so I think that's something that could be worked on. But I think on a whole, we do have a very good growing culture around youth political engagement. People are informed. Um, Times are changing, and I think they're changing for the better in terms of youth being the young being engaged in politics. What do you think, Linus? Do you think we've got a healthy youth, um, you know, amount of political engagement? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, obviously 2014, the referendum in Scotland mm-hmm. specifically, that played a large part in Scotland was ahead of the game in terms of youth participation in Scot in politics. I think um, because of that, and obviously, um, Labour does deserve whatever party you're from, I think we can all agree it deserves a lot of credit in engaging uh, young people uh, across the UK as a whole and energising them and giving them something to get excited about. Um, the Greens, we've tried to do that with less success. But, um, yeah, I think no matter what party you're in, then further youth participation in politics, no matter what party it is aligned to, is a positive thing for our democracy. Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Thaddeus from the Conservative Party, Paul from Labour and Linus from Scottish Green Party. Um, Thank you, everyone. We'll see you again in two weeks' time where we'll have another panel to discuss the last two weeks' news for youth politics. Your music, your views. Boom Radio.